Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. There are so many wonderful people in this industry who I just cherish working with every single day. It's one of the most rewarding parts of my job. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, happy Thursday, Solar Warriors. Hope you're having an amazing week. If you are new to Suncast, thank you so much for joining us. And I encourage you to check out the previous episodes with today's guest, Erica Myers, where you can learn more about what's happening in the fast and furious world of electric vehicles. She was recently featured in a Tactical Tuesday, episode number 258, discussing her research into EV charging rate structures. I really enjoy getting insight into how someone finds their way into clean energy. And it was a pleasant surprise to find someone from my own home state of South Carolina heading up SEPA's EV research group. And if you're like me, you're wondering when electric vehicles are going to dominate and what is holding them back. Well, you're in luck because that is a topic that Erica has spent a lot of time thinking about. So settle in to get to know her better. And thanks for choosing us as your audio companion for the next hour. Remember, you can always find resources and learn more about today's guest recommendations, book links, and much more over at mysuncast.com. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, Warriors, I am so glad to have back on Suncast, but for our first one-to-one interview, someone that if you're a regular listener, you will have heard on Suncast back in early March. Erica Myers joined us first at the Podcast Lounge in Salt Lake City, last SPI, and I was inspired by the conversation that she had with Christian Rosalind. We published it during our lineup for uh, Women's History Month in March. And I reached out to Erica because there's a lot still to be told about the work that she's involved in at SEPA. For those who are unaware, Erica has been at SEPA since 2015, and she leads the research function for SEPA's transportation electrification uh, sector. Erica brings more than 16 years of experience in the clean energy sector to her work at SEPA. She specializes in that nexus between the grid, electric vehicles, and renewable energy, a topic that we've touched on quite a bit here on Suncast. One of the things that I find also particularly interesting about Erica that I think makes her a standout and superstar is the fact that she, like I, is a South Carolina native. So she's got a lot going for her, and I'm glad to welcome Erica to the show. (laughs) Thank you so much. It's such an interesting time uh, in the world today, not only uh, with what, uh, what we're all experiencing with the global disruption in our schedules, but what we are all have been working towards for the better half of the last uh, two decades in the global disruption of the energy grid and the way that we transmit electricity and the way that we transport ourselves around electric vehicles. It's always fun for me, especially to have a conversation with someone who's a fellow South Carolinian 
when uh, when we have bound ourselves in in different roles. And I'm really curious to hear more about that spark moment in your career. Perhaps it was in childhood. Perhaps it was during college. I'd love to hear how you first became aware of this topic of clean energy and electric vehicles and then how that became a career for you. So interestingly, the very first exposure I had to renewable energy was in high school. I joined the speech and debate team and it was one of the topics that we had for an entire year. Uh, So I spent a lot of time researching wind and solar and hydropower biomass, all those different types of of renewable energy resources. And at the time, I was really interested in the topic. It was something that really resonated with me. I wanted to work in the sustainability field when I was a really, really young kid. It's just been a calling for me my whole life. Uh, And that particular topic is, for me, really interesting and exciting. But it wasn't until after college, um, I was actually going to grad school and happened to know someone at the South Carolina Energy Office, and he offered me a summer internship, and I had nothing else to do. So I was like, okay, I'll do the (laughs) internship. It ended up becoming a full-time job. So I started as an intern, and then they offered me a full-time position as the Renewable Energy Coordinator, and I stayed there for five years and oversaw the development of dozens of different renewable energy and alternative transportation fuel programs for the state. Um, It was a really exciting time. This was between 2006 and 2011, right after EPACT of 2005. um, There was this whole new slew of credits for renewable energy and alternative fuels that did not exist previously. There were uh, lots of, at the same time, there was also this huge spike in cost for gasoline and diesel. I know that quite a few legislators felt a lot of pain coming from their constituents and keeping their tanks full to meet the needs of of their own, um, their driving needs. So finding alternative homegrown sources of fuel from biofuels uh, resonated really well in the state. And so um, there's just a lot of change and a lot of interest in energy at that point. And so it it exposed me to a lot of different things, uh, not just on the technology side, but also on, you know, working with people, lots and lots of different stakeholders. Yeah. I want to pause there for a second, because I think this is a really interesting point for those who maybe are unaware. South Carolina is by and large a rural state. I grew up on a farm. Many of our friends grew up on farms. Uh, Perhaps not yours. You grew up more in Lexington, uh, near near Columbia in the city area. But but we nonetheless... The, a large piece of the constituency of South Carolina's representatives are farmers. And I never knew much or, you know, as a South Carolina resident who at that time, by that time I moved to California and was already looking at biofuels, what the background was around biofuels. But I assume that there was a history there. Have you seen that that conversation around biofuels has helped to support uh, this idea of um, of sort of homegrown resources or that, that we now see in South Carolina taking um, a bit of a turn for the favorable, hopefully, toward, around clean energy as well? Like, what, what was your sense from the 2000s to now that South Carolina and by way of South Carolina, maybe the Southeast, have had, have had a, a sense of buy-in around biofuels, clean energy, et cetera? 
Yeah, I, I would say South Carolina is not dissimilar from a lot of other states I've been to where they support economic development from within the state. And there's this whole big campaign about South Carolina grown or South Carolina certified products that are are developed are grown or manufactured in the state. Um, it's not that dissimilar for renewable energy, right? If you can put solar energy in your neighborhood or on your rooftop or at your farm, this is energy that is produced locally that's helping to grow the local economic uh, base within within a lot of jurisdictions that, that really could use that additional tax support. I do think that that resonates very much with, with the constituents there. From the early days working at the South Carolina Energy office at a time when many folks in uh, in the state, and certainly myself as a as a as a South Carolina native, uh, weren't very tuned in to what's happening around renewable energy. How did you envision and therefore uh, sort of arrive at the work that you're now engaged in in Washington D.C.? What was that path like? So leaving South Carolina was bittersweet, but I knew that I wanted to do bigger things uh, in my career and, and, you know, working for the state was wonderful, but um, only so many opportunities. So my husband and I moved to DC and I managed to get a a job at ICF International, which is a large consulting firm uh, just outside of DC. And um, I worked for four years helping different clients, uh, both federal government, uh, state government, utilities, um, a variety of different uh, private sector companies uh, figure out what they would do around alternative transportation fuels, um, including electric vehicles, as well as renewable energy. Uh, so I got to work on some really amazing projects during that time um, that opened my eyes to all the different issues nationally and, and to some extent internationally that I wasn't exposed to in South Carolina. I found out about this job at the Smart Electric Power Alliance, and and uh, it was one of those jobs that you know it's kind of written for you. <laughs> so it was too hard to to pass up. So I, I applied, and and fortunately, I, I got the position at the time, which was a, a research role um, for SIPA. And so I've been there now for five years. Amazing. And you spend a lot of your time at SEPA really focused on this idea of, as we mentioned in the outset, the nexus of the electric vehicle infrastructure and how it impacts the constituency of SEPA, which by and large are those who run, manage, operate, and interface with the utility sector, distribution, transmission, etc. I'd love to hear sort of at a macro level, a question that we've been thinking about here at Suncast. I used to ask a lot in our hot or not section or hot or hype section around that nexus. Since you got an early start, you know, 15 plus years ago in renewable energy and now focused on electric vehicles, how do you see what's happening, generally speaking, within electric vehicle infrastructure, fleet conversions? How's that impacting not only our electric power generation market, but also uh, things like battery storage? Uh, I'd, I'd be curious to hear how you've seen that evolve. And of course, we'll spend some time talking about where what's the state of the union now, but how, is, how has that become uh, a bigger piece of the conversation within SEPA? Well, so SEPA has been focused on clean energy for over 25 years. And uh, within that, we, we knew that uh, you can't really address clean energy without thinking about all the other things that are necessary to support it. So 
grid modernization, getting the grid to a place where it can be more interactive and, and receptive for these sorts of two-way flows of power uh, from distributed energy resources, um, including things like distributed solar, battery storage, and electric vehicles. Um, so there's this interactivity uh, that's available from things like mobile battery storage that is not necessarily available with other DERs. So the uniqueness of this particular asset is, is certainly novel, but also has potentially large implications, not just on the power draw. So the fact that, you know, if we see large widespread adoption of electric vehicles, that's going to demand a lot more resources from the grid in terms of generation, um, but also the transmission and distribution systems that will need to supply it. If we can somehow direct the vehicles to charge during more optimal times, therefore the, the impact becomes less. And uh, thinking about it from a clean energy integration perspective, if you can time that charging to overlap with peak solar or peak wind, you can actually also have a double benefit of reducing the curtailment of those particular assets, uh, thereby allowing us to integrate more renewable energy across this, the base. I would say also that from a vehicle grid integration perspective, not just when you charge, but also how you're charging. So the speed of charge is critical. So if you can have it charge longer periods of time at a lower rate of charge, you can also have you know, big impacts on the system. Um, but then also eventually we'll maybe get to a place where vehicle to grid or vehicle to building is an option. And so you could actually leverage the battery uh, as you would a stationary battery. From a vehicle grid integration perspective, that's the, the panacea, right, is, is this uh, connecting of the battery to the larger grid. And if you can think about it in aggregate, especially maybe at a fleet depot where you've got maybe hundreds of megawatts potentially of battery storage amongst thousands of vehicles, uh, that could present real value for a grid operator um, as well as for a fleet operator who may see their fleet predominantly as a cost center suddenly shift into a value asset for them in terms of new revenue. There's a lot of things that need to evolve to get to the point where that's even a possibility, but uh, certainly it's something that uh, SEPA thinks of and other groups think about as uh, a midterm possibility. Yeah, there's a, uh, you know, there's a, as you mentioned, a paradigm shift about how this infrastructure is being managed. Uh, and I think that a lot of what uh, we see as the tip of the spear are these fleet conversions. One of the things that surprises me, and I imagine many of uh, your constituents, uh, or rather the stakeholders within SEPA or uh, infrastructure are thinking about, are uh, the public transportation infrastructure, mostly, mostly managed by municipalities. With regard to the integration into the grid, we mentioned as vehicle to grid, uh, which is both how do we think about the infrastructure necessary as well as can we create additional revenue streams and, uh, and help these fleet owners uh, really monetize and, and move this concept out of incubation and into activation. Are there uh, places like China that we can learn from about how this uh, how this should be rolled out? Are there hotspots in the United States that you think about that are doing it well? As as lay people who want to learn more about how 
uh, grid infrastructure is integrating with electric vehicle infrastructure, where would we think about uh, reading more and seeing uh, examples of best practices right now? Well, I think it's difficult to point to specific places and say these are best practices since this technology is is very much evolving very rapidly. We know that there's a lot more research, for example, in things like rate design and managed charging than there is for vehicle to grid uh, at this stage. Um, but some com- countries that I've been looking to uh, for information is the UK. I think that um, there's a lot of really interesting insights that they're doing on managed charging and vehicle to grid that could be very interesting for, for the US markets. I should probably back up real quick and clarify what I mean by managed charging. So a little bit of terminology, so to speak. I appreciate that. <laughs> For those that are not familiar yet with, with all the, the buckets that fall under vehicle grid integration. So typically the way that we think about it is three different buckets. There's passive managed charging, which is essentially behavioral load control. So how do you incentivize somebody to shift their charge uh, using things like monetary benefits. So uh, a rate is one way to approach that. If you can give them a time of use rate, for example, that that incentivizes somebody to charge off peak during um, the cheaper times of the day, then that's one form of, of passive managed charging. Um, active managed charging is a second bucket that we define as basically direct load control. Um, so this would be where an aggregator or a utility or some other third party would directly control the the state of charge for a vehicle. So for example, uh, they could turn up, they could turn down, they could turn on or off a charging event. Um, And then usually there's some sort of reward or incentive that comes along with that for for the customer. This sounds like what we might consider right now the rather binary nonetheless, um, but third-party controlled uh, demand charge functions like turning your air conditioning on or off. That's exactly uh, the, right. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And are there companies right now with deployments of these types of assets? Yeah. So we published a report last spring called a comprehensive guide to electric vehicle managed charging. And we identified at that point in time, 38 projects across the country uh, for managed charging um, that were utility led. And so these include everything from residential programs to workplace managed charging programs, even to public, although those are fewer and far between. But predominantly, most of what we've seen at this time are for residential and workplace, which are the two most common uh, places that people charge. So there's passive, active, and then a third bucket? Yeah. The third bucket is vehicle to grid or vehicle to everything, B2X. Um, this would be the bi-directional control uh, that I've mentioned previously, essentially where you can uh, not only modulate the charge of, of the charging vent of the vehicle, but also you can take the energy out of the battery and supply it to some other source. So for example, home or a, a building of some sort or the grid itself. Um, and so those are the three buckets under vehicle grid integration. That's really cool. So there are three buckets. There's passive managed charging, active managed charging, and then vehicle to grid, which you've just outlined those three. I think the one that most of us really hear about in the zeitgeist in the in publications lately is vehicle to grid. Frankly, vehicle to everything or V2X is a new terminology for me. 
And it sounds like uh, where a lot of folks are looking at grid edge and thinking about uh, vehicle integration, they use the terminology vehicle to grid. Is, is there perhaps some erroneous usage of that terminology? Yeah, it, it's something that I, I'm a little concerned about is that just folks don't understand at this point, uh, there's not a lot of standardization around vehicle to grid uh, for vehicles quite yet. Um, we actually are in a place where there's still uh, certification bodies that are approving the charging equipment to allow have UL listed uh equipment, for example, that is actually capable of doing two-way power flows from the charging device. Uh, and so a lot of what we've seen deployed in the field is, is what I would call still very experimental. There's still a lot of work to be done to also uh, make sure that the vehicles that are doing vehicle to grid are getting the battery warranty approved. So, so there's some companies that have said, if you do vehicle to grid, then your warranty is is no longer valid. What's an example of companies that have said that? Nearly everyone, except for Nissan. I knew you were going to say Nissan. Isn't there a company <laughs> right there in Charlottesville that's been working with Nissan on this? Yes. Uh, you're thinking of Fermata Energy. I am. And so does Fermata fall in that vehicle, vehicle to grid bucket? They do. I'm going to have to get those guys on here to talk as well. <laughs> <laughs> it's exciting times. I mean, I think it's hard enough for us to keep track of who the various vendors are for products within our own categories, uh, let, alone, let alone the myriad um, startups that are looking at vehicle charging infrastructure, right? Both from devices uh, like, like Tritium and um, ChargePoint and, and the companies that manage the charging all the way to the companies like Fermata that integrate with manufacturers to bring... Uh, this additional or extended functionality. So it sounds like right now, companies like Fermata uh, and manufacturers, uh, namely Nissan, are still working on uh, providing a, a stable body of standards and functional equipment that that won't disrupt the the warranty situation predominantly around the battery because they, they have to basically accept that there's not going to be any unexpected or long-term damage to the battery. That's correct. Now, now, um, also, I should mention that there are medium and heavy-duty manufacturers that are creating vehicle-to-grid capable vehicles as well. One example is Bluebird, which uh, just this year released their vehicle-to-grid school bus. So that is one another one that that would fall under that uh, eligible category, so to speak, for V2G. And they're collaborating with Proterra on that, if I'm not mistaken, right? That is correct. Great example of, of, of another U.S. company that is uh, really making a huge charge. Erica, I've mentioned a couple of times, you know, most of our listeners are really focused on clean energy, but increasingly clean energy uh, technology has to contemplate how does the electric vehicle integration, integration uh, mechanism work. We have early examples like SolarEdge, who uh, were among the first to come out with uh, direct uh, integrations for electric vehicle charging at home. How does the work that you and SEPA uh, are putting forth help those in the renewable energy space around policy? And how do you think about engaging with the renewables industry broadly? Yeah, so absolutely, we think there's a lot of synergy between the clean energy industry and the electric vehicle industry. And we're hoping that through our community, we can really get these folks together. 
uh, which is one of the reasons that we are launching Electric Vehicle International this year as part of Smart Energy Week. So we believe that these folks under the same roof could potentially come up with solution sets for the other uh, that maybe they hadn't thought of yet, especially as it relates to vehicle grid integration. Um, so SolarEdge is a great example of creating an inverter that not only works with the solar system, but also can provide level two charging for a customer's EV. So we've seen kind of a growth of this sort of uh, type of inverter offering that helps save people money. So instead of buying two different devices, they just have to buy one device at the same price that you would normally pay for an inverter. And so we see this as well for solar installers who may be thinking of ways that they can expand their portfolio of offerings for their customers. We've seen a lot of overlap between people who buy solar and who buy electric vehicles, making these types of products available when they're visiting with residents. Uh, they could say, hey, you're already going to be upgrading your circuit panel. Why not add in another breaker for an electric vehicle charger? And we'll install that charger for you. So there's a ton of overlap, um, I think, between these industries from, from a business development perspective. But also, frankly, it, it helps also with the grid more broadly. Um, if you have solar energy and you also are consuming more energy with your electric vehicle, um, then you have reduced impact potentially on the distribution system. And therefore, maybe you can allow more solar systems into your network than you would have originally. And folks that are you know, maybe limited by their availability of are putting in renewable energy like solar on their rooftop because of these constraints, maybe with more electric vehicles, it will become a diminished issue. You know, every commercial solar opportunity counts. So why lose that sale to high demand charges? Did you know that you can offer up to 30% in demand charge savings at a tenth of the cost of installing a battery? With DemandX, the innovative new demand charge reduction software from Extensible Energy, your client can boost ROI and reduce payback time without all the expense. And as a Suncast listener, you can get a free demand charge analysis by going to extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast. And while you're there, check out three recent case studies on how this easy to install software is a win-win for you and your commercial solar clients. DemandX works for office buildings, retail, churches, and more. See for yourself at extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast. Did you miss out on the live sessions of the Suncast Clean Energy Summit? We had so much fun with some of the most inspiring and impactful leaders in the clean economy throughout the Americas, learning about where the industry's going and giving you practical advice on how you too can participate and grow with us. Well, you're in luck because my team recorded the whole thing and you can check it out over at suncastsummit.com. It's posted there for a limited time for free. You can also see all of the replays inside of our private Facebook group, the Clean Energy Guild where all the videos are posted and lots of solar warriors just like you are connecting. Both are linked over at suncastsummit.com. See you on the inside. I remember you and I having a discussion that I thought was really interesting. And I think that this is where it comes back to the, what you, the comment you were making earlier, how in particular solar sales uh, and installation companies can leverage what's happening in the EV infrastructure evolution to both expand and complement their value proposition to homeowners. Is it true that there are programs right now, even if they're in pilot, where a residential homeowner can basically 
through various incentives from their their uh, utility effectively pay for the cost of an electric vehicle or the cost of you know some of the equipment? Yeah. So that conversation we had before, I was referring to a an interesting program in the UK uh, being done by a, com- a utility called OVO Energy. So they are working with Nissan Leaf owners uh, and offering free level two chargers. It essentially is under some sort of export tariff where they will buy the cheaper power during the middle of the day. And then the EV owners will sell their electricity during the higher peak prices of the day. Um, So the net differential between their import and export um, is something along the lines of $200 a month that they're making in revenue from the utility. Uh, And so thinking through what is the opportunity for customers here in the U.S. as participants potentially as maybe even cheaper prices than, than the alternative sources and aggregate, we could eventually come to a scenario where people are interested in participating and, and maybe making up a good chunk of their their lease cost for their vehicle or, or maybe even uh, purchasing a vehicle. I think this could really be a compelling argument for them to buy an electric vehicle and participate. I think what's really interesting as well, just from a business model perspective, which you alluded to earlier, is you know there's we've learned a lot and figured out from solar tariffs, et cetera, things that directly apply to or can directly apply to to grid integration, which is why I want listeners to really be thinking about how what's happening around policy is going to impact the nature of renewable energy sales in the United States and and abroad. Uh, That said, you know, these types of incentives, which can help homeowners, number one, we can begin at a state level to learn these things and integrate them into our state lobbying, as it were, for the types of incentives that we want to see on a local level, led by the uh, the wonderful research you guys are doing at SEPA. But there's also a huge opportunity right now, even within the existing customer base. In California alone, more than a million solar installations that don't have batteries incorporated. So it gives us an opportunity to think through a sales strategy, a deployment strategy that can help homeowners understand, and and then more broadly, commercial and government asset owners understand how this becomes more of a revenue stream. And as we have sold renewable energy for more than a decade now, uh, moving things that are an operating expense and a liability into the asset category and a revenue generating opportunity. It's mind boggling um, given you know what we were trying to accomplish uh, back in 2005, 2006, when we got into this industry, um, what we are able to help solar installers deploy uh, moving into what SIA and SIPA have, or maybe just see how coined their phrase, the, the solar plus decade. What questions, Erica, do you find maybe I or probably others as well are not asking you that we should? So I think some bigger questions are that we're tackling at SIPA are how utilities can go about designing effective programs. This is a brand new space. It's never been done before. It's you can kind of pull from different clean energy programs, but they don't exactly translate to an electric vehicle driver. There's different motivations, for example, from somebody who buys solar than somebody who buys an electric vehicle. And then there's different tolerances for program design. So, for example, people don't buy a car to help the grid. 
they might help the grid if the incentive is properly structured for them in a way that they can handle it and that they can take it. But otherwise, they're really just going to charge to best suit their needs because they need to get somewhere with that vehicle. So I think a lot of times we take for granted that these customers are just going to show up and they're going to be happy to stop charging when we tell them to stop charging. And, And I think the reality is that as an industry, we need to come up with really good ways to design these programs. And I think that distributed energy resources are a really good option to add on to some of these programs. So for example, if you've got fleet, for example, that may have limited opportunities for load management, they have got to get their delivery trucks out in a certain timely manner. Um, and so they're going to they're gonna be less tolerant even more than a, a individual to adjust that time of charge. So maybe that's when you, uh, as a utility or an aggregator, say to that fleet charging depot, we have a battery that we can put on your site. We can help you with demand charges. We can help limit that cost of charging for you. Or maybe another option would be a microgrid package. So we can ensure that you have resiliency and reliability, even if the grid goes down that we can help complement this transition of your fleet, which we know will ultimately be more cost-effective for you in the long-term, but also has these other things that, you know, maybe you didn't have to encounter before when you had underground storage tanks for your gasoline or diesel. So this is another reason, you know, I think why this is such a good topic for an organization like SEPA when we are thinking very holistically about the, the development of these alternative uh, technologies and how they very much complement each other. And when we think about electric vehicles, these are batteries just like anything else you would see in a behind the meter storage solution or a microgrid. And so how can we smoothly integrate these when we're talking about non-wireless alternatives or virtual power systems? How do we think about this in conjunction with everything else? Before I jump into more of the meta questions around lessons learned and um, and books that you love, is there anything else that, again, you feel like we maybe should be touching on that our listeners would be really intrigued by that I haven't uh, pulled out yet? I would just mention that SIPA has built an EV community that uh, is open to all of our members. We have right now monthly electric vehicle working group call, uh, but we also have subcommittees that deal with a, a wide range of topics from rate design to managed charging to distribution planning. And we just actually launched a new subcommittee on fleet electrification. And so this is where we really felt like we have built a community of stakeholders that are coming from so many different perspectives. We have a lot of electric utilities, but also a lot of solution providers, consulting shops, government agencies, other nonprofit research organizations. We have the auto industry, um, charging infrastructure. We are trying to literally bring everyone together so that we can come up with a better solution than if we were alone. And is this something generally that uh, the public can participate in or is it only SEPA members? Can you help them understand how someone might access that resource? So the working groups right now are a member benefit, 
but folks that are not members can benefit from the materials being produced by the working group. So for example, one of our working groups last year, uh, the subcommittee on distribution planning for electric vehicles released a report called planning for an EV future, how utilities can succeed. That report is free to the public on our website. Um, it provides some really good insights into how utilities are thinking about distribution planning uh, as they see more and more electric vehicles come onto the system. The report was written for utilities, but we also wrote it from a lens of fleets or other entities that are thinking about policies and regulations as it might relate to electric vehicles just to help give them a better understanding and appreciation for the amount of work that goes into developing a robust distribution system that will accommodate this large load. Let me ask you a few questions generally, Erica, as you've been able to craft a career in an area where other folks are certainly thinking about how to get into uh, some element of uh, helping our global population transition to clean energy and think about uh, sustainability and renewable resources. Within that context, how important have mentors been for you in your career and how might you translate that in the form of key lessons or takeaways for us um, that you've learned from mentors and how you think about mentoring others? Yeah, mentors have absolutely been a critical part of my career path, uh, especially in a career where there is no defined career path. <laughs> I feel like uh, having to figure it out one step at a time uh, has been rough, but at least having the advice of what I consider to be a small group of people whose opinions I highly value and trust is really critical. I do see myself in a weird space that people thrust upon me as suddenly becoming a mentor to others. Um, cherish that though. I, I have a lot of young women who I've been mentoring over the years who are looking to me for advice, not just on the electric vehicle space, but just how to navigate a field that's largely dominated by by a lot of men. <laughs> um, and so it's, you know, it's a, a different kind of, of balancing act, I think, for, for some younger women. And I also do love to mentor just youth in general. I, I go to a lot of Clean Energy Leadership Institute meetings. They, they keep inviting me back at the DC chapter. So I keep going um, because there's usually the best questions uh, I ever get over the course of the entire year come from those CELI chapter meetings. Shout out to CELI. The, uh, those <laughs> folks just, I mean, it's like, uh, CELI is like the Y Combinator for renewables. It's amazing. <laughs> you know, they pump out uh, leaders in every aspect. Um, I need to get the, those folks over on the Suncast as well. Adam and I have talked about that a few times. Adam James, obviously one of the co-founders of CELI, but um, it's led by a tremendous group. And I, I really think that the cohorts at CELI, I agree with you, are tomorrow's leaders for our industry. Absolutely. I wonder, uh, similarly, what advice might you have for folks maybe going into CELI? What advice do you give them as they're thinking about developing their career moving forward into this industry? But, but more importantly, how might you encourage someone to think about transitioning into renewables in, in any aspect as a way to further advance their impact on the world? At the beginning of every CLI presentation that I give, I have, I have one slide and I say, the job you have in 10 years does not exist right now. Uh, because the industry has just evolved so quickly that uh, I think 
for people who say, I want to do this particular thing in this industry uh, for the rest of my career. It's not realistic uh, because the clean energy space has changed so much just in my you know, 16 years of being here. Um, I never thought that I would be in a position that I'm in today. That was never even something I considered but because EVs were not even really a thing 16 years ago. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know what the next thing will be in the next 16 years. Uh, so I just, you know, constantly challenge them to stay ahead of the technology, just find something you're really passionate about and be the best at it. The other thing I, I tell them is that Nothing is more important than your reputation. That's the thing that you have to guard the most closely. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. You, the only way you can actually get a reputation that, that is a strong one is, is showing up every single day and being available to people in your community and your network. That's something that, that you know, I, I tell them to absolutely be aware of. And, and then their network, of course, is, is extremely important. And to take advantage of the fact that they're in a place like D.C. where they can meet a lot of people. For folks who are working at getting into the renewable energy space or clean energy more broadly, I actually had so many questions at one point uh, from folks who reached out to me on LinkedIn that I wrote a couple of articles <laughs> with some advice, which you can find on my, my LinkedIn profile. But at a high level, I think hiring managers are interested in knowing that you have an interest in this particular field. And so to the extent that you can do anything to show and demonstrate that interest in clean energy, I think would be helpful. Volunteering helping to write an article or you know, anything that basically showcases your interest internships to the extent that you can at certain stages in your career. Obviously, an internship is probably more difficult, but I know that SIPA has a robust internship program, and I know there's a lot of others that do as well. So trying to, to identify those opportunities um, to get some hands-on experiences is, is really important as well. So some folks look to you as a mentor, and you've clearly outlined how you think about uh, helping others. Who do you look to as thought leaders and mentors in the industry that others maybe haven't heard of? There are a lot of people in the trenches working at electric utilities who I go to on a very regular basis for advice and support. Some of those include folks like Greg Kresge from Maui Electric, who's been a co-chair for the Electric Vehicle Working Group now for three and a half years. Um, I always look to his advice. Kathy Knoop, who recently left from Salt River Project and now works for APS, Arizona Public Service. She's another one who I've really gone to quite a, a lot for advice over the years. Uh, and then uh, there's others like Ivan Erlob from North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association, who I used to call when I was younger in my career, uh, almost on a weekly basis for advice. <laughs> and he was really tolerant about uh, taking those calls and taking the time to walk through some things with me that I was struggling with in my previous role. The list could go on and on. There are so many wonderful people in this industry who I just cherish working with every single day. It's one of the most rewarding parts of my job. Speaking of learning, Erica, I know that you like 
to read and I imagine that you have a list that you curate when folks do ask you for recommendations. Is there any particular place that you go for learning? Any books that you recommend or gifted and why? I love to read. I can't get enough books uh, usually, but I'm, my time is somewhat limited. So I, I try to be uh, thoughtful about which ones I pick up next. Brené Brown is probably one of my favorite authors recently. And I love what she has to say about being vulnerable, about sharing your personal story and how that really affects the people around you. Vulnerability is something that we are typically adverse to, but I find that the work that we do, it yes, it's technical, but everything comes down to relationships at the end of the day. It's, you know, your ability to persuade somebody to think about a, a problem differently ultimately is largely tied to your relationship with that individual. The way that she teaches that if you are willing to show the, you know, white underbelly, then maybe the people who have problems that wouldn't normally share them with you will share their you know, white underbelly with you. So I love it. Is there any particular book of, of the several that she's uh, known for that you like and recommend a lot? I, I really like the Dare to Lead mm. book. Yeah, we've had a, a, a number of recommendations for Brene lately, and she's obviously uh, recently killing it with her new podcast, as one might expect. Is there any particular habit or consistent practice that for you has given a large level of impact in your life, something that you return to regularly, if, if not daily, that helps you be more effective? So I find that every day is different. Uh, so there's really no way to appropriately map out on a daily basis a routine that will work uh, for every single day. So what I typically try to do is keep my prioritization list as up-to-date as possible. So the things that are most critical, I, I work on first. There are some times when you're deep in research where you're just going to have to ignore the email for a while. You know, you have to really concentrate on writing, digesting and analyzing the information in front of you that any other distractions are, are really problematic. Um, and so to the extent that I can block off chunks of time on my calendar to do those tasks, I do. And I make it make uh, my team aware of the fact that I am going to be doing particular things on certain days or certain times so that they don't try to double book me for something. And that tends to help a lot, especially in the writing process. Well, you mentioned that you are often working uh, on lots of research. And I know that you guys publish uh, ferociously on the SEPA website. How can folks learn more about you, find your writing, engage with you? Is it best to find you on Twitter, on LinkedIn, on the website itself? Can you give us some resources where folks could find more? Yeah, so to find the actual materials that we're publishing, I'd suggest going to our website, which is sepapower.org. We have an entire section on transportation electrification if you look in the About Us section. But I also do quite a bit of work on LinkedIn. Um, I publish some articles there independently from SEPA. And I also post a lot of things that I find interesting in the electric vehicle space. So I find that people will come up to me and they're like, thank you so much for sharing all this electric vehicle news. You're the, you're the one that I get the most valuable content from. And it's like, wow, <laughs> that's really great. Thank you. <laughs> 
it's fun for me. I, when I find something really interesting, I'll repost it on LinkedIn and, and uh, especially I'll clip out like what I think the most interesting maybe sentence or paragraph is of that particular article for folks that can't read the whole thing. That's awesome. And that's a really great tactic, by the way, that you do, which is to clip the highlight, uh, some, you know, some thought from the article and use it as a way to, uh, to, to share. That's a little hack that I learned from uh, my buddy, James Ellsmore, who's uh, one of those thought leaders I follow on yes, Twitter a lot. Yes, yes, yes. He's great. I follow him too. <laughs> yeah, a little shout out to James here and un unintended, but you know, I'm really looking forward to one on a final note. I'm really looking forward to this electric vehicle international. How could folks learn more about electric vehicle international? For those who are unaware, you mentioned it earlier. It's going to be kind of a key new forum at the North America Smart Energy Week, formerly known as Solar Power International. I think it's a fantastic way to expand the overall scope of, uh, of North America Smart Energy Week. Is there anything that you in particular would key up for folks to be looking for? Yeah, absolutely. So we're really thrilled to be able to offer a lot of content this year on electric vehicles. We will have a dedicated electric vehicle theater for two and a half days on the show floor, in addition to an entire track for the full program. So we're going to be touching on lots of different topics, including a lot of those that we discussed on the call today. We are working in conjunction with a major partner called Fourth Mobility. They do a big conference every year called EV Roadmap, and we're really thrilled that they're part of our team and helping us to curate and develop this content. Uh, we'll also have a dedicated area on the show floor for exhibitors. And so I'd encourage anybody that's going to be at Smart Energy Week to also check out that programming and that part of the show floor. And until then, we'll wrap today, as we always do, with a bold prediction. Erica, what one thing do you see happening in the electric vehicle market that perhaps nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? I would say one thing that's going to happen with electric vehicles that most folks don't think about is the amount of entertainment and the experience that customers will have with future vehicle models. Inherently, electric vehicles are different from traditional conventional vehicles uh, because of the ability to incorporate software updates on a real-time basis or regular basis that bring in a whole new load of features. And I think that the manufacturers that are doing it right are the ones that are thinking about ways that they can integrate more and more features that enhance your daily life. So things that will, through your car platform, make your life better. And I don't know exactly what those are yet, but I just have a sense that that's going to be the future of the industry. Erica, we will be certain to not only be tracking that through your wonderful research, but also bring you back on as these uh, eventualities unfold in our industry. Uh, Erica Myers is the principal for transportation electrification at the Smart Electric Power Alliance, and she has joined us here from her now remote office in Washington, DC. So glad to have you on Suncast today. Thank you so much for having me. Man, I'm so excited to be offering more insights into the broader clean tech and EV landscape here on Suncast. Do you enjoy these diversions from solar? Is it helpful? Thank you so much to Erica for sharing her journey and insights with us here today. I'd love to hear from you. What topics and guests would you like to see, not only here on Suncast, but in our live events? 
And speaking of live, make sure that you're following my LinkedIn account so that you won't miss any of our LinkedIn lives, which is where we broadcast a lot of our webinars and a lot of our in-person discussions. If you're looking to network with hundreds of other clean energy professionals, you might want to check out our Facebook group, The Energy Guild, and get access to exclusive live trainings, mentorship, guild-only guides, and more. Join us every Tuesday and Thursday right here for more insights like the ones you've heard today. Until then, remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.